Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 468 for November 8, 2015. This week, the Cyber Threat Alliance says that it has cracked the code on CryptoWall. That's the malware that's associated with $325 million in payments to crooks. But there's some bad news, too. A single image created by today's digital cameras shooting in RAW mode wouldn't even fit on the original PC hard drives. And that's just one crazy thing about today's technology. It short circuits, the end is approaching for Windows 7, a first glance at on one's Photo 10, and Firefox seems to be fading away. In spare parts only on the website, traditional camera manufacturers are being overrun by electronics manufacturers. The launch of Halo 5 was the biggest ever for the franchise. And there's a utility that claims to eliminate dead links on websites and in documents. The Cyber Threat Alliance, that's a group that includes Fortinet, Intel Security, Palo Alto Networks, and Symantec, says that it's cracked the code on CryptoWall, malware that's associated with $325 million in payments to crooks. This shows what can happen when organizations that normally are rivals work together. Lucrative Ransom Attacks, Analysis of the CryptoWall Version 3 Threat. That's the name of the first published report using the combined threat research and intelligence from the founding and contributing members of the Cyber Threat Alliance, or CTA. The organization's white paper provides valuable insight into the attack lifecycle of this lucrative ransomware family, which thus far has netted some $325 million in payments to thieves. The document's findings include information about how $325 million in revenue that went to attackers included ransoms paid by victims to decrypt and access their files. The 406,887 attempted crypto wall infections. A description of more than 4,000 malware samples more than 800 command and control URLs for servers used by cyber criminals to send commands and receive data. It also describes the breadth of the threat, hundreds of millions of dollars in damages across the globe. North America was a key target, of course, for the campaigns, but other areas suffered attacks too. And all of the key findings and intelligence in the report are based on the collective visibility the members of the CTA have into the crypto wall threat. The report lists key recommendations by the CTA to aid users and organizations in avoiding crypto wall victimization. For example, ensure that your operating system, applications, and firmware are updated with the latest versions of the software. Understand typical phishing techniques and how to thwart them, such as by not opening email from unknown addresses, as well as not opening certain file types that might arrive as attachments. Keeping browsers updated and enabling settings that disable browser plugins such as Java Flash and Silverlight that prevents them from running malware automatically. And review access to security policies within corporate networks 
to limit access to critical infrastructure from systems and users who don't need it. If you'd like to download a copy of the report, it's free, and you can also learn more about the CTA by visiting the Cyber Threat Alliance website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And the organization plans to hold a webinar on December 1st to discuss the report. Registration is free. On the other hand, a white paper from Mobile Iron this week says that as employees choose smartphones and tablets to perform business tasks, mobile apps become critical business tools. With recent mobile attacks such as Xcode Ghost, StageFright, KeyRaider, and YiSpectre, corporate data on those mobile devices is at risk. Mobile Iron released its State of App Security Report, which is available on their website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, and it's free. Hackers look to mobile apps to capitalize on enterprises' inability to prevent and detect mobile threats. That's according to Mobile Iron Director of Security Research, Mike Rago. Enterprises need to rethink their security approach, he says, because mobile devices are fundamentally different from office-based hardware. Some of the most popular applications involve enterprise file sync and sharing. Examples include Dropbox, OneDrive, Google Drive, Box, and SugarSync. Often, these kinds of applications are blacklisted by corporate IT departments, that's because they frighten IT administrators. Most of the applications have enterprise versions, though, Rago says, so that organizations can give their employees the experience they want while protecting corporate data. A key difference, he says, is that these applications require a mindset shift from one of restriction to one of enablement. One in ten enterprises has at least one compromised device accessing enterprise data. That's according to research by MobileIron. And more than 50% of enterprises have at least one device that is not in compliance with corporate security policies. That means that traditional security technologies can't protect the corporate data. That's where the sales pitch comes in, by the way. Rago says that when a device falls out of compliance, MobileIron can take action to protect corporate information. For example, by sending an alert to the user, or by blocking the device from accessing corporate resources, or even by wiping all corporate and email apps off the device. End of sales pitch. Recent attacks have targeted mobile apps and operating systems to grab proprietary data. Applications that run on Apple's mobile iOS operating system that are infected with Xcode ghost malware can collect information about devices, and then encrypt and upload that data to servers run by the attackers. Malware detection company FireEye identified more than 4,000 infected apps in the App Store, and the mobile app risk management company AppThority found that almost every organization with at least 100 iOS devices had at least one infected phone or tablet. to me the other day that every digital photograph I make is as large as the first hard drive I own. In fact, it's larger. 
The hard drive was large at the time, more than 60% larger than IBM's standard 10-megabyte hard drive. Today, that 16-megabyte hard drive wouldn't hold even one raw image from one of my cameras. Disk space is no longer something we run out of, though. I upgraded to a 20-megabyte drive, then a 40, then an 80, then two 80-megabyte drives. Wow, I was really getting somewhere then. And eventually to a breathtakingly large one-gigabyte drive. How could anyone ever fill all that space? But now it's uncommon for computers to have less than a one-terabyte drive. And floppy disks? For some reason, even those three-and-a-half-inch disks in solid plastic boxes were still called floppy disks. They didn't flop at all. Even the five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy disks weren't that floppy. But maybe you remember the eight-inch versions? They were floppy. And how long has it been since you've seen a computer with a floppy disk drive of any sort? Thinking about disk drives led to thoughts about other things that have changed. I once had two phone lines at the house, one for voice calls, the other for the computer. A 1200-baud modem connected me to the office, and eventually I was able to upgrade to a 2400-baud modem. The fastest baud rate supported is 9600. Higher speeds are achieved with some technological tricks. The fastest modems running at 56 kilobits per second are insufficient for today's websites. One thing I definitely do not miss is the screechy sound of two modems connecting and negotiating their operating speed. Most computers don't even have modems now, even notebook computers. That's probably because virtually all hotels and motels offer Wi-Fi service. If you still need a modem, you have to buy an adapter that plugs into a USB port. Take a look at the back of your computer. You won't find serial or parallel ports back there either. USB has eliminated them, too. And have you seen a typewriter recently? IBM hasn't made a Selectric typewriter since 1991. Selectric's had 75% of the U.S. market for electric typewriters used in business, but that division was spun off to Lexmark back in 1991. Or dot matrix printers? They were popular, and some models had the ability to shift into a high-quality mode. You'll still find them in some specialized applications, but even auto dealership service departments usually have laser printers these days. Remember taking a roll of film to a drugstore or to a little box named Photomat in a shopping center parking lot? For that matter, remember film? Founded in the 1960s, Photomat became a giant and was eventually listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Photomat provided next-day processing, but then drugstores installed one-hour mini-lab systems that hurt Photomat in the 1980s. Then came digital photography. Now the picture you take can be seen halfway around the globe just a few minutes later. Kodak bought the name Photomat but later sold it to Digital Generation, an advertising technology company, and a successor to Viewpoint Corporation. Oh, and Polaroids? Kind of the original digital camera? The cameras created a finished black-and-white picture in a minute or less, but users then had to smear a smelly fixative on the pictures. Later cameras created color images that didn't need any additional work. And this is another technology killed by digital photography. Polaroid filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in 2008. The brand does still exist, 
but the only products are very highly specialized materials. The C prompt. Remember that? I still use the command prompt a few times a week, but today's C prompt is called command, or CMD for short. Most people who perform command line functions probably use Windows PowerShell, and Windows 10 even offers to start PowerShell automatically in place of the command prompt. Mac users have access to the Unix command line, but how many Mac users even know it's there? Do you miss receiving America Online discs or CDs in every magazine you subscribe to? Probably not. America Online has apparently given up on attempting to attract new customers, but they're still holding on to about 2 million subscribers who have dial-up connections. Oh, and speaking of magazines, how many of those do you receive these days? Some of them charge the same for print and online content as they charge for online only. Time is an example. Others, such as Newsweek, charge extra for the print version. This makes sense because it costs the publisher considerably more to print and distribute paper copies. Oh, and fax. Fax was like magic. If you needed to get a document to someone hundreds or thousands of miles away, all you needed was a fax machine. Feed papers into your machine, and a few minutes later, a copy would come out of the receiver's machine. Sometimes those copies were even readable. Today, you just send a Word document, or save it as a PDF, and then email it. Check out the website for some memorable pictures. In short circuits, speaking of things we no longer see or hear, Windows 7 has been living on borrowed time, but not for much longer. Microsoft usually discontinues sales of an operating system two years after the operating system's successor ships. For Windows 7, that would have been October 2014. Well, now that Windows 10 is out, Windows 7 will no longer be available after October of next year. Windows 8.1 will also cease being available at the end of October 2016. Microsoft extended sales of Windows 7 Pro indefinitely last year, and some manufacturers still promote machines with Windows 7 heavily, because some buyers just don't want any of the new versions. And although Windows 7 will no longer be sold, enterprise customers will still be able to downgrade from a later version to Windows 7. I still have to figure out why a company would want to do that, though. Downgrading from 8 or 8.1? Maybe. But Windows 10 has so many enterprise-friendly features that downgrading just seems illogical. Updates for Windows 7 ended in January of this year, but extended support, which includes bug fixes and security updates, will continue until 2020. Well, at least most users seem finally to have migrated away from Windows XP. In July, I took a look at the On One Perfect Photo Suite 9. It's an application I hadn't mentioned for several versions. One shortcoming I noticed back then was that Perfect Photo Suite 9 couldn't deal with raw images from certain cameras. That has now been fixed. 
Four months ago, I wrote, The On One website states that the SRW RAW format created by Samsung cameras is acceptable, and initially that appears to be the case. But then the thumbnail images are removed, and opening the file results in a low-resolution file that's not usable. At the time, On One support explained that version 10 would add support for the SRW format, and that turned out to be true, but it's only the tip of what appears to be a very large iceberg. For starters, its name is now On One Photo instead of On One Photo Suite. The interface has been completely reworked. Black and white effects are no longer segregated from the rest of the application, and although On One Photo works as a plug-in for Adobe Lightroom, Photoshop, and Photoshop Elements, it also functions as a standalone program. The new version arrived too late for inclusion in this week's program, but you can be sure that I'll have more to say about it in a few weeks. Browsers come and go. Netscape was once king of the browser hill, but Internet Explorer destroyed it. Firefox looked for several years as if it might be the long-time champion, but now Firefox usage is hovering around 11%. Incredibly, the worst browser still has 51% market share, according to Net Market Share. The worst browser, of course, is Microsoft's Internet Explorer, although it has been improving quite a bit over recent versions. The IE replacement for Windows 10, Edge, hasn't yet shown up on radar, but it probably will as Windows 10 continues to expand. Edge, by the way, is a pretty good browser, and it is particularly viable on tablets. The numbers from net market share are a little bit slippery because they vary considerably depending on whether the device being used is a desktop, a phone, a tablet, or something else. Net market share's numbers are based on desktop usage. Firefox's current user share is 11.3%, which is down a bit from the month before. The last time Firefox's market penetration was that low was 2006, but the browser had been introduced in 2004, and at that time 11% was an all-time high as it continued to gain market share. Back then, IE's penetration was nearly 85%. Less than a year ago, Firefox was approaching the 10% mark, but climbed back to about 12% at mid-year. Then, in July, the declines resumed. Chrome is in second place with about 31% of the market. Microsoft can ensure that Internet Explorer, and now Edge, have a place of honor on every Windows computer. Google makes sure that Chrome is on every Android device, but to obtain Firefox, Users have to visit the Mozilla website and download it. So, maybe you're wondering, is this the end for Firefox? Well, sometimes companies do bounce back. Remember when just about everyone, including me, thought that Apple would go out of business in 2007 or 2008? Well, that didn't happen. So, don't write off Firefox just yet. And don't write off spare parts only on the website. This week, traditional camera manufacturers are being overrun by electronics manufacturers. The launch of Halo 5 was the biggest ever for the franchise. And there's a utility that claims to eliminate dead links on websites and in documents. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.